Today's reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkening their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of hearts. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the, as the truth in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to, re- and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in truth, righteousness, and holiness. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Gary. Well, good morning. Sorry. Sorry. Good morning. You guys will be seated. Um, Want to say welcome? Boy, I sound really loud. Is that me, James, or? Okay, okay. No, I just didn't know if I was yelling. Anyways, good morning. Great to have everybody here. Uh, Betty and I have been here about seven and a half years, and we have absolutely been thrilled to partner with you guys, working hand in hand, elbow to elbow. It's been a great time, so uh, we're pleased to be here with you guys. Um, At Mac, we ask questions. So we're going through the book of Ephesians. As Pastor said, we've just finished going through the Lenten series, finishing up with Easter Sunday last Sunday. We're back in Ephesians. If there's something that I say that's unclear or you guys have a question, please feel free to raise your hand as long as it's pertinent to what the Scripture has to say. Uh, I'd also really encourage you guys to consider getting on Ashley and Amos's email. They sent out a newsletter. A couple of things. One, it teaches you how to pray for them because we already support them financially, but we want to support them in prayer. As he said, there's an obvious tangible difference that those guys feel over there because we pray for them. And he usually gives like 30 days of how to pray for them, different days or different upcoming events, as well as hearing cool stuff that's going there. So there's stuff up top, but I'd really encourage you guys to participate in his email. Uh, If you pray with me and then we'll get into it. Jesus, thank you that you just taught us a whole theology lesson through worship. We are no longer slaves to sin, plain as day in your word, Lord God, as we've become born again. Sin's dominion has been killed, and we're grateful for that. So, Lord God, continue to establish your word in our hearts. Speak clearly through me, Father God, that you might be honored and glorified, your Son lifted up, the Holy Spirit honored and received well, that our minds might be renewed and the sanctification process progress, Father. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's uh, title would be, Ye Were, Ye Are, and Be Ye. I want to bring your attention to some similarities and differences between today's passage and one I preached literally two months ago, almost to the day, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The very beginning of both passages, the end of chapter 1 and before 17 is in an exaltation of Christ. It talks about him being the head. And then before our verses, it talks about him being uh, giving us gifts. But there's an exaltation of Christ. And then all of a sudden, Paul also brings up uh, the destructive nature of our previous life. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, man, ye were dead. 
And then we're going to go through what Paul says today. So I ask you, why does Paul feel such a strong need to once again articulate the old life that these Gentiles once lived and warning the Ephesian believers of its peril? And there's probably plenty of reasons. I'm going to give you two. One, there's differences. And we're going to talk about that real briefly. Ruth Paxton says, God's sovereign work through grace is the driving force behind chapter 2's discourse, while man's cooperative action through faith is the motive for today's passion or passage. God's sovereign work brought us salvation. But in the midst of sanctification, there's a responsibility that you and I have. And that's what Paul's bringing out here. So there's the difference. The similarities are... Paul had a personal experience with Hymenaeus and Alexander who made shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, Paul exhorts Timothy to fight the battle well. As Paul saw firsthand what could result as a lackadaisical faith or the looking back with longing of Lot's wife as they left Sodom and Gomorrah, were exhorted in these passages to put off. And yet she was reaching for that garment, that old life. So Paul saw firsthand. That's why there's two warnings. Think about it. Six chapters, and in two of the six, there's a very, very similar exhortation. I'd ask you guys, go back and read the end of one and two, one through four. So Paul's doubling down here emphasizes the seriousness of our cooperative action through faith in choosing new life instead of the old shell prior to our becoming born again and receiving Christ. So I want to set the stage a little bit. If you talk to Alvin about some of our elder meetings, he would tell you that he could tell when I was getting jacked up about something. I'd sit up a little bit straighter, I'd sit on the edge of my seat, I'm leaning forward, and my hands are gripping the chair maybe, and when it's my turn to talk, I begin to emphasize words and maybe articulate a little bit better, and I'll be emphatic in my speech. And then the best one that Betty loves is when my eyes go really big, and she knows I'm ready for a fight, or I'm, I'm excited about something. And that's what Paul's doing here. Look at the first couple of words. Now, if I come up to you after this, and I'm going to say something to you, do I come up and say, hey, Ken, I'm about to say something to you, and then say it? No, there's no pre-course to what I'm going to say to him. I'll just come up and say it, unless, you know, we're at a house yesterday for Bobby's house, and we're putting in electrical stuff, brand new service. Now, if Ken's ready to grab some hey, watch the wire. So I might be emphatic in that, and that's what Paul's doing here. I say and I testify in the Lord Jesus. Paul's making an emphatic affirmation and a serious declaration that's not about his personal conviction towards the Ephesians. He is saying, Christ in me is about to exhort you in this passage And you need to hear what I'm saying because it's as if Christ is speaking through me. I have his mind. 
This is not about some personal preference that he has. I'd also encourage you, the Ephesians knew Paul. But you and I know Paul. We've seen that he's written a large portion of the New Testament. We've seen that he's a phenomenal theologian and a channel of the Holy Spirit to speak clearly to us the articulations of the Word of God, God's desire, his commands for us. We've seen Paul's life. How many times has he been beaten and striped? When Agabus took Paul's belt, bound his hands and feet together, Paul's ready to be in tears, and he says, man, you guys are killing me. I've been assigned this task to suffer for the gospel, and I'm not going to shrink back. So we see him in death and in life. How much more should we pay attention to his words here? So let's get into the scriptures. Paul's talking about the Gentiles being in the futility of their mind. Futility really just means pointless or useless. The Gentiles' thought process, which directed their thinking, their life, their actions, their convictions, and the goals, served a useless end. Now we're going to talk in some generalities here, okay? Paul's talking about the Gentiles' foundational thinking, the very premises and presumptions by which they base their thought process process on and which then determined what the results of their thinking would be, their actions. Premises and presumptions. If we we are driving and we go to, Betty and I every Sunday go to Einstein's and Gross Point, because I'm in Gross Point, do I just assume that everybody there is wealthy? That's a false presumption. As you and I are looking at the word of God, we've got to be careful that we don't have false presumptions about the scriptures that we're reading. Ask Martha and James, my kids. They were raised in the Assemblies of God, where Betty and I attended for many, many years. There's some great doctrine in the Assemblies of God. But there's some things that my kids have had to wrestle with because they assumed it was truth, but it might have just been something that Betty and I took and manufactured a little bit of our own doctrine. Most of the time it was good, but there's probably some things that they could tell you, like, yeah, that's really not in Scripture, Dad. So we got to be careful about premises and presumption. So we're going to talk, talk about the generalities. As a rule, unbelievers very often don't believe in life after death. Throw you in a coffin, worms eat you, you're done. So why should I bother going through suffering. Why don't I just make my life easier? The Christian believes that real life begins in death, right? And so we're training our minds to be eternally thoughtful and that suffering is just part of life. Now, do we get frustrated? Man, I'll tell you, that's probably my number one thing. Lord, why does there got to be pain? Why don't you answer my prayers Why haven't you inhabited the 48214 with your glory and brought redemption? Unbelievers see life revolving around themselves. And so self-interest is always the focus and servanthood is something viewed with contempt. The believer understands that we've been saved for a purpose 
to glorify God in all things, joy and suffering, pain and sorrow. So consequently, all that's done is for his glory with that mindset. And the thinking of the believer is based on scripture. We have a foundation of truth that is eternal and practical as much as when it was written as it is today. Whereas the unbeliever basically has his subjective perspective of life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow I'm just going to get eaten by worms. I'll just do what I want to do. Paul Diefenbach says that Paul in these scriptures maintains that the moral conduct of men is the outgrowth of his mental processes. The dominant thought here as we find ourselves in Ephesians is that doctrine determines conduct. What we believe affects the way we behave. Doctrine determines conduct. That's why constantly Pastor Leon and the elders are encouraging us in the scriptures to be mindful of the scriptures. Your discipler is encouraging you in the scriptures. Your Mac group leaders are encouraging you in the scriptures. Scriptures tell us, man, when you greet somebody, greet them with songs of affirmation, with testimonies of God's goodness in your heart. You know, some of the prayer requests we had today are just... Break my heart. That's why I love community. Because we could share that brokenness with each other. Verse 18 says, They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. A couple other scriptures, Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Matthew 13, 13, that is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The Gentiles knew of God, but chose not to allow that knowledge that they had to affect their lifestyle, to change the way they thought, the way they acted, their perspective. They knew of God, but they really didn't know God as you and I would define it. And I think the scripture verse is wrong here. It should be 18b for the next slide. 18b says they were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in in them due to their hardness of heart. So for some reason this didn't set right with me. Like grammatically it seemed wrong. So I wanted to see, okay, they're talking about alienation from God because of the ignorance that was in their, because of darkened hearts, right? And ignorance, that just it struck me as odd. So I looked up the word for ignorance, and it's agnoia, which means a willful blindness, not the ignorance that mitigates guilt. Let me give you an example. So let's just say it's night, I'm late for an appointment, I'm in a new part of town, I'm really nervous because it's an interview. I'm driving my car. Police officer pulls me over and says, Sir, do you know why you've been pulled over? And I say, No, not at all. He says, Well, you're doing 45 and a 25. 
And I say, man, officer, and I give them all the reasons I just told you guys, that ignorance can potentially mitigate my guilt because I didn't know. Now, it is my responsibility, but for, for an example, the officer could say, man, I, I believe you, dude. Cool, just be careful, keep your eyes open, don't, don't be speeding. That same example, what happens? He pulls me over, he says, hey, do you know why I pulled you over? And I say, yeah, man, I was flying in a 25. And he says, well, didn't you see the sign? Of course. Late at night, I'm busy. I just thought that that was a recommendation. I'm important. I need to get to this. What's going to happen? There's no mitigation of guilt because of willful blindness. I saw the sign. I didn't care about the sign. I blew right through it because it's what I wanted. That's what we're talking about here. So as Paul then adds this balance of the verse stating due to the hardness of their hearts, it appears he's doubling down on the idea that the Gentiles' ignorance was due to the choice seen in the above Romans passages as well of knowing God but rejecting the purpose of that knowledge and what it's intending to do which change our lives, change our thinking, our mental processes, our behaviors, our worship and our servanthood towards God. Now what troubles me here, I hope I can say this right, alienated from God because of the ignorance caused by hardness of heart. Hardness of heart caused the willful blindness. But go with me on this. Doesn't that in turn take the willful blindness which causes more hardening of heart? When you willfully are blind to the commands of God, you're hardening your own heart. So there's this nasty cycle. Hard heart leads to uh, ignorance. Ignorance leads to hard heart. And you're in a miserable situation with no hope whatsoever other than God breaking you out of that cycle. That is not a cycle you want to be in. The word hardness here is where we get our word porosis, which describes calcification of the bone that becomes harder than the bone and occurs in some injuries and joints, rendering them stiff and paralyzed to the point that Paul describes the human heart here as petrified in sin and paralyzed to spiritual truth completely unresponsive to the things of God because it's locked tight. There's no room for your heart to be soft because you've chosen willful ignorance. Your hearts become hard and calloused. This continual and often rejection of God brings about the terrible declaration of Romans one twenty-eight that says God gave him over to a depraved mind. Church, you don't want to be there. You don't want your willful choice to lead to such a hard heart that you're in this place. When Betty and I first moved down here, I was talking with a friend, and he was telling me about his trouble with a particular sin. And this sin is almost accepted in society. But he was telling me that God spoke to him and said, you're up here, 
how do you know that you're not going to become this? And if I told you guys what the word would be, you'd be repulsed. And he said, that was a wake-up call for him. God said, you don't have control over your sin. You think you do. You think you can stop at any time. But willfully choosing causes hardness of heart. And you're not going to get out of that without God's grace. Verse 19, they become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy, to practice. To practice every kind of impurity. In Benson's commentary, I looked it up, and he says, who being past feelings, which is how the King James states callous, who being past feelings, the original word is very significant, properly meaning past feeling, pain, or void of distress. Let me ask you a question. When do you go to the emergency room? When there's no hope. When the cold bath doesn't bring your fever down. When the Excedrin doesn't take away your headache. The distress of your position in life at that moment is past your scope of being able to fix. You've got to go see a doctor who's smarter than you, who has more power than you, who can give you an IV. That distress is a healthy sign of you seeking the anti-distressor, God himself. They've become so callous in their hearts and minds, they don't even know that they're sinning. There's no pain in their conscience. There's no question of, am I doing the wrong thing? No. Because they are in such darkness, their eyes do not perceive the despicable state they're in. Such men are not merely overcome by strong passions. They actively engage in the pursuit of these passions. They don't dabble in sin. They immerse themselves in it. They pursue the satisfaction of their pleasure, fleshly appetites with a passion. They can never get enough of it. They're addicted to it. Second Peter 2.14 states, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. Man, that's scary words, church. Trained in greed? And then Paul says, but that is not the way you've learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul had a personal knowledge and teaching of the Ephesians, and he's saying, hey guys, no excuse here. I sent the dudes to teach you. I know their doctrine. It's sound doctrine. You've heard the truth of scriptures exposited properly. And if I can tell you, that responsibility is on Leon. That's why he's uh, emphatic about going through books of the Bible, front to back, so we have the whole counsel of God. That's why he's emphatic, knowing the type of elders that are on the elders board. That's why he's emphatic about worship. We, we learned theology and worship today. Thank you, Michael. 
And that's on Leon's shoulders, guys. You need to be praying for him. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. To put off your old self. Reject the identity that you had before you came to Christ. You know, I've shared this with you guys a number of times. The day after I got saved, if any of my friends, you know, when I went back to the fraternity, I was a different man. And I literally say it was only the grace of God. It had nothing to do with me, and I mean that with all that I can fester. But they knew my speech was different. My thought processes were different. My goals were different. I had eternity in mind. My conscience was awakened. God snapped my broken, black, stony, calloused, unbelieving heart and gave me a fresh new heart. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I put off the old self only because he did. Now, I want to throw something in here, and I hope you guys can see the relevancy of it. As I was going down this road, I'm thinking, yeah, but you know what? Listen to these scriptures. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. We sang, or I don't know if we sang or read it earlier. Or, uh, Rebecca, I think, said this. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, as anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Read Romans 6, 6 6-13. God killed sin's dominion in our lives. But the act of obedient faith on our part is to put off, reject, and discard the sin which so easily besets us. Ephesians 2 God's work of grace of salvation in our life. Ephesians 4, 17, our responsibility, eternally thinking, acting in obedient faith to choose to partner with the Holy Spirit in the act of putting off, in the act of renewing our mind, in the act of putting on. Remember in James, what does he say? Show me your faith without your works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. As a believer, our lives ought to be changed. We ought to look different. We ought to talk different. We ought to act different. Those that are around us, pre and after, ought to say, man, that brother's changed. And you give God glory and honor because you know it's not you. You know it's a work of grace in your life. Verse 23, and be, new, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 2 Timothy 1.13 talks about holding on to the pattern of sound teaching. 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about being diligently to correctly teach the word of truth. Again, these are your responsibility to hold on tight to the doctrines of Scripture. That's why it's important that you read and you study and you grapple with those things and then to be able to diligently teach correctly the word of truth. 
remember our discussion earlier that what we base our thoughts on will determine our thinking, which in turn gives way to corresponding actions. So I'd ask you, what are you currently wearing? Why, what identity have you put on? Are you wearing the robe of blood-bought righteousness or a garment of greed and self-serving interests? Does the garment of a master's degree give way to arrogance in your life? Or does a garment of poverty give you false humility or self-pity? Our identity is a complexity of layered cloths that we put on, layered clothes. How your parents raised you, how they didn't raise you, the church you were raised in, the environment, the ethnicity you were raised in, your education, what your parents taught you that was important, what your friends taught you was important. These are all these pieces of clothing that we have on. But the cool thing is, is as we put on Christ, it filters those things so that the bad goes away, the good is exalted, and we're able to walk with that robe of righteousness. Verse 24, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Romans 13, 15. Rather close yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Colossians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Galatians 6, we're to clothe ourselves in God's armor in preparation for battle which the Christian life is. And this one, man, this is just, you guys better shout. Colossians 3.12, Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Holy and dearly beloved. For those of you guys that are in sorrow right now, you are dearly beloved by the Father. For those of you that are longing for a healing, longing for a a broken relationship to be fixed, longing for salvation for your family, for your friends, for your neighbors, longing for the 48214 to be healed for Detroit, for Michigan, for the world, you are dearly loved by God. And he's given you a garment of righteousness that we can act appropriately, bringing him glory and honor. And our neighbors say, like, what the heck? What's the name of that church you guys go to? Or or what is it that you believe? And we have opportunity to share with them the gospel. Because you and I have all been there. So you guys have probably seen um, maybe like an international competition where a runner breaks through the race line, whatever you call it, finish line. And what do they do a lot of times? Puts on the flag of his country, right? Because that's his identity. I won one for my company, for my country. That's who I'm associated with. Think about you guys. We got U of M fans and we got state fans. You put on that jersey and that's your persona. That's who you are. You love what they represent, and you're part of that representation. 
you walk into a martial arts studio and you see a guy with the black belt. You say, man, that brother spent some time getting that thing and you afford him honor. That's part of his persona, right? He's clothed in a black belt. I hope this works for you guys, but I think most of you, some of you might know who Tiger Woods is. So a week, week and a half ago, he won a tournament. And if I'm wrong, Mary, if Mary's here, um, I think it's been 14 years since he's won a major because he had some screwed up things in his life, made some real poor decisions. 14 years since he's won a major championship. And he wins the Masters. Now, does anybody here know what's one of the cool things about the Masters? What's one of the trophies? You get a trophy, right? What up? Yeah. Yeah, you get a cool green jack. Well, I don't know if everybody thinks it's cool, but... So there was some redemption for Tiger Woods, and I'm not talking spiritual redemption. I don't know that if he's repented or not. Pastor Leon and I were talking about this. But there's a redemption here, because he hasn't won in 14 years. Everybody said he's dead, he's done. But can you imagine how it felt putting that thing on? Oh my gosh, shoulders back. Come on, baby. What were you guys saying about me last week? Last month? It's on, Right? Or what about how Christ was clothed when he washed the disciples' feet? If I understand correctly, he's probably kind of naked and then just a small cloth. No, no you know, beautiful robe. And he bent down and he washed the disciples' feet. Or how about the scarlet robe that he wore as the soldiers mocked him? That was his identity. The lamb given by the Father for a sacrifice for you and I. That was the robe that he freely chose. When your husband insults you, when your wife shows you disrespect, when your friends, when your family dishonor you, make fun of you, You're living in Detroit. Why would you do that? Why would you follow Christ and all those rules? Give away your money, give away your time to people who could care less about that stuff? When when community members do 65 miles an hour through stop signs down Sylvester and I want to throw rocks at them? When they throw garbage on my front lawn? Put on Christ. We put on Christ as we sacrificially invest our finances where the return is for reasons other than financial gain. And when our time invested, even when it appears an endless drain, we do so with joy. We put on Christ when our priorities have little or nothing to do with our personal preference, our personal fulfillment, our dreams, Because our aspiration, our singular aspiration, is to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Your identity, ye were. As a believer, ye are. As a believer, be ye. So now we're going to enter another form of worship. We're going to be taking tithe and offering.